This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, And now, ladies and gentlemen, it's time once again for Evidence for Faith. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. Evidence for Faith is a show where we give you the evidence to know for certain that Christianity is true. And today we're going to be talking about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can know for certain that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. The evidence is there. The arguments are there. That's going to be the topic today. You'll be able to call us at 609-398-1020 if you'd like to join in the conversation, ask us questions, or challenge us. Feel free to do that. Uh, we take calls. We handle objections all the time. Some of our favorite atheists, I'm sure, are listening right now. Uh, give us a challenge. And you can also email us uh, with a question, and that email address is evidence for the number for evidenceforfaith.com. That's right. And you can do that even from the website, evidenceforfaith.com. You can check us out on Facebook. There's discussion groups, uh, discussion topics going on at that group. And you can also download podcasts from iTunes. So lots of ways to listen to the show. Today we're going to be talking about the resurrection. We talked about the historical Jesus and how that fit into things. Um, we talked about his claims of deity. Is there a Jesus out there without miracles? Did he really claim to be a God? And so this fits into it too, that historical Jesus. Is there a historical Jesus out there that didn't rise from the dead? Or did Jesus actually rise from the dead? So that's what we're going to get into. But we do want to, we've got a couple topics. Mike, you've got a, a news item. I do, Keith. When I was looking at uh, this week's Time magazine, in fact, it's the one that's dated June 7th, 2010. Of course, that's this week's copy. On page 16, there was a little blurb in there about scientists building the first synthetic life forms. That caught my eye because obviously I um, am very much into the science and medicine part of the discussion, you know, the ongoing debate between creationism and uh, uh, evolution. And I thought that this uh, article uh, was very succinct in its presentation of, of what's happening uh, uh, in Maryland uh, by university researchers there. So, th so exactly what did they do? Well, they, the, the word that they used is that they built the first synthetic life form. Out of, out of plastic? No. Let, let me just read. This is only a two-paragraph blurb, but I found it very, very interesting and... Uh, had I written this article, I would have written it a little bit differently. Uh, and it says this, uh, Further blurring the line between science fiction and science fact, a team of researchers led by J. Craig Venter, V-E-N-T-E-R, a co-mapper of the human genome with Francis Collins, by the way, has synthesized a bacterial cell from scratch using chemicals and computer data. 
The breakthrough could lead to new alternative energy sources and vaccines, as well as, critics note, a new age of bioterrorism. Now, they gave you three essential steps that were required to actually create this new life form, and they are as follows, very simply now. One synthesis, the bacterium's four-letter-based genome, is sequenced on a computer and duplicated using chemicals. Okay? Number two, construction. Snippets of the DNA are then fed into yeast cells that stitch these snippets together until they form a complete million-letter long genome. So the complete sequence of the DNA is now in the yeast. Okay? Activation. The synthetic DNA is substituted for that of a cell from another bacterium species, and then the cell begins to divide. So basically, they're using the machinery inside the yeast cell, extracting this complete DNA genome and inserting it into another bacterium that's had its own intrinsic DNA uh, removed. Correct. And once they do that, then that bacterium is programmed to start dividing on its own. So they have not created life? No, they haven't. They're copying life, utilizing existing machinery. Right, right. Okay, That's now, what they did. They basically took two separate cells. One, they, they took the outside and, and threw the inside away. The other one, they took the inside, chopped it all up, rearranged it the way they wanted it, and put it into the other cell. Okay, now. That's basically what they did. If I was a creation researcher who did the same uh, experiment. Okay. I would have probably reported it a little bit differently. How would you have reported it? Well, it would it would read something like this. Okay. Scientists design and create the first semi-synthetic life form. Now, notice I use the words design and create. Uh-huh. Okay. As opposed to build. And furthermore, it's a semi-synthetic bacterium. It's not totally synthetic, meaning right. out of scratch. Although they say it was built from scratch, it really was not. Right. <clears throat> And, and this is how the article would read. Further evidence of life's complex design required some of the best scientific minds to synthesize a bacterial cell. A team of researchers was led by uh, J. Craig Venter, Ph.D. Dr. Venter co-mapped the human genome with Dr. Francis Collins, who's a believer and author, and he wrote the book Language of God. By the way, recommended reading, folks. Dr. Venter and his team synthesized the bacteria from life's basic chemicals, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and a few others, and used uh, a computer database along with yeast cells and other bacterium to form this um, semi-synthetic life form. The experiment's design required three very complex steps. Number one, synthesis. The bacterium's DNA was first sequenced, and the four letter base pairs were identified in a very specific order, controlled by a very complex computer program. Second, construction. Snippets of the DNA were then fed into pre-existing yeast cells that um, that's, uh, take these snippets together, um, utilizing, um, uh, let's see, a complete million, I'm yeah. sorry. Well, basically, they were using the machinery right. inside the nucleus that, that actually controls these right. DNAs, parts of DNA. So they were using the, the nano machines inside the nucleus. Correct. So all these snippets were then stitched together utilizing uh, the complete million, um, I'm sorry, until they formed the complete million letter long genome sequence. And then thirdly, the activation. Uh, Synthetic DNA was inserted into the nucleus of different bacterial species with the original DNA extracted. And then the hybrid bacterium begins to divide. Now, here's the key. In steps two and three, the complex cellular machinery in the yeast as well as the uh, hybrid bacterium 
um, um, are required because DNA by itself can't create or duplicate itself. This complex um, uh, set of uh, ribosomes, mRNA, transport protein, ATP, and so forth are all required and must be in place and functional for replication, duplication, and bacterial cell division. This further is proof that DNA plus primordial soup does not beget life. Excellent. As written by Dr. Larrakis. So, so Time Magazine, they, see? Time Magazine should hire you as a— You think? Uh, they would, you know what they would do? They would stuff it in the religion section. Uh, well, That's they would they fire do. me. <laughs> so what you're saying is that they didn't create life by themselves. What they did is took the incredibly complex machinery of life, divided it up, basically designed it the way they wanted it to be, which was as a, as a kind of a very simple life form that they could then later add. I think the purpose of this is that they're going to later add uh, gene segments, which will then maybe produce an antibiotic or produce oil or mm -hmm. something else, and then they can uh, have the uh, bacteria replicate themselves, and it'll be like oil-generating bacteria. You know, so we won't have to dig for oil anymore. We'll just grow it. And the bottom line, Keith, is that this entire sequencing experiment, call it what you will, mm. required intelligent design, yep. not only from a laboratory perspective, but a computer programmer's perspective. 17 so years forth. they've been working on they've, it. That's exactly yeah. correct. Yeah, so, I'm familiar with the, the um, experiment because I've been reading about it in uh, last year. That book came out, Signature in the Cell, by Stephen Myers. And that actually talks about this um, uh, experiment because it's been going on for so long. And, and they talked about earlier stages of it where they – this is a million uh, parts to that genetic code. This is in the earlier version, he had like 400,000. So uh, very interesting, and it's really proof of intelligent design. Exactly. All these things are intelligently designed. And that book, by the way, I, I recommend it highly, Signature in the Cell. It's really thick. I mean, it's very intimidating when you look at it. I almost didn't buy it because it's like 700 pages or something, but it and, is and who's, fabulous. whose signature is in the cell, Keith? The intelligent designer. Ah. And who might the that be? Creator of life. Oh, okay. Just making sure we're on the yep. same page with that. Yep. So, um, all right. Thank you for that news item. You, If you're just joining in, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And you can call in at 609-398-1020. We got an email, uh, well, and you can email us too. So if you'd like to email us, go to the website evidenceforfaith.com. Evidence, the number four, faith.com. Here is an email question that we got. This says, and I'll address it to you. It doesn't say to Dr. Mike, but I'll address it to you, Dr. Mike. Do you think it more than coincidence that religious fundamentalists tend also to be political extremists? Okay? And then they give an example. In other words, they tend to oppose abortions even for non-religious women. Wow. Yeah. That was a, that was a tough one. I, I, I didn't know how even well, to answer that question. I made a few notes, um, you know, that this con the question's so convoluted it's hard to— Well, I, a couple of things, first and foremost. Uh, whose definition is religious fundamentalism, number one? Uh -huh. Who's defining that? Okay. I mean, obviously the secular media uses that term frequently— uh, and I, I really have a problem with that. I mean, if 
if you're religious, I mean, there's there's over 300 religions worldwide. Right. Um, are are they targeting specifically extreme Islamists? Are they targeting extreme there Christians? Are they targeting yeah. extreme Jews? Right. So I'm not I'm not sure what that question actually is targeting as far as the extremism. Right. And the fundamentalism. I think they're equating, you know, that if you believe that God created life, then you're a religious extremist. And that's bad because religious extremists are also political extremists. That's what it sounds well, like. Uh, you they, know, the, the extremists are the ones who don't fit into the political mold of secular humanism. <laughs> there you go. So I think that if you have a basic understanding of, of God's basic laws and, and God's Bible or God's written word— then you're automatically going to be qualified as an extremist if you believe, in fact, that what he wrote was true and that life is sacred. Right. And there are there are two kinds of extremes. You know, there are the extremists, the political and religious extremists, who, because of their extreme views, want to kill you. And the But the opposite of that is not that, um, say, Christians also want to kill you. It's that the opposite of that is the extreme view of love your enemies. Yes, and that the Christian would be martyred instead be of— Be willing to die for you exactly. in your place. That's exactly correct. Yeah, so that's the other—so uh, maybe— That is an extreme. Maybe we could have a little more of that kind of extremism of loving your others. But mm-hmm. I also I picked up on this part about the um, you know, opposing—the example they give is opposing abortions even for non-religious women. Now, I'm not sure why that—that that seems such an odd thing to say. It's as if that somehow it would be wrong for a Christian to have an abortion, but for someone who's not a Christian, it wouldn't be wrong. You know, it's so convoluted, it seems to me this is actually coming itself from an extremist view, well, some let, kind of extreme view uh, of know, relativism. Keith, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that based on uh, my own personal experience in medical school. When I was a junior medical student, my first day on the OBGYN service, I had to meet the um, surgeon, the, the GYN surgeon, uh, in the uh, operating room because a uh, D&E was scheduled. Now, I didn't know what a D&E was. Right. I was a little wet behind the ears, third-year medical student. And it is? stands for dilatation and evacuation. Now, they use a, um, a form of seaweed to dilate the cervix so that they can get their instruments into the woman's cervix. And that's the dilatation part. Uh, laminaria is the, the, the seaweed that they use. And it slowly expands the woman's cervix overnight. It's inserted the night before so that when the woman comes in, she's anesthetized, and then they put the surgical instruments into the woman's womb, and with a vacuum device, they start cutting and sucking the contents of the uterus. Okay, now, at that time, I was not a believer. Okay, Mm -hmm. I was 24, 25 years old, okay, Um, and I saw body parts being sucked through this vacuum tubing of clear plastic. Okay, now, I had an immediate reaction as soon as I realized what was going on, and I became sick, and I had to leave the operating room. Okay, so I left the operating room, and the gynecologist came out once he was finished the procedure, and he said, are you okay? And I looked him right in the eyes, and I said, don't ever ask me to participate in that procedure again. And he said, no problem. Okay, what I witnessed was firsthand an abortion, okay? And it was gruesome, body parts and blood being sucked out of another woman's body uh, that I knew were um, not a fetus. I don't call it a fetus anymore. I call right. it an unborn child. Right. Okay, so the appalling experience that I had firsthand as a non-believer would be just as appalling now to me as a believer. So this this has nothing to do with religious belief or fundamentalism. 
This has to do with witnessing something that I knew was tragically wrong, tragically wrong, and just unacceptable, and I had to leave the premises. And itself is an ex- something extreme. That I thought you know? was extreme. Yep. Uh, uh, somebody else who was able to have a license to terminate a life. Right. Yep. Sad, 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 sad. Well, if you are just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Labrakis. Our topic today is the resurrection. Mm. So we uh, addressed it very briefly last week because we were talking about the historical Jesus. What's the historical Jesus? The historical Jesus is this view that there is kind of a real Jesus, a kind of a non-miraculous Jesus, a non-spiritual Jesus who is the historical Jesus. And non-believers and skeptics are always saying, if only we could get back to that, you know, what was the real Jesus that was the nexus of all of this development of Christianity, you know, that would be great for the world. Um, And we looked at the fact that even despite what the critics say, there is multiple attestations from non-biblical sources, from historians who write about Jesus, um, contemporaries of his time and within the past, within the uh, 100 to 150 years of his life. And uh, we looked also then at um, miracles. You know, can you strip him of miracles? What about the claim that he makes that he is God, right? Can that be stripped away? No, it turns out that the closest, most reliable manuscripts, the data from the first century, shows that he very clearly did claim to be deity. So now comes this question that if Jesus claimed to be God, claimed deity, and then rises from the dead, what does that say about Jesus? Sounds like it's it's an infallible proof that he was who he said he was. Right. It would be a stamp of approval by God. It would be evidence that he really was who he said he was. Mm -hmm. So we're going to look at some, just briefly, we're going to look at some of the evidences for the resurrection. And this, I hope, will really make uh, Christians excited that it is so um, basic. You really only have to know four or five uh, basic facts that all the critics, virtually all the critics agree on individually. If you, if you isolate each fact about the resurrection, 95% or more of biblical critics say they agree that this fact occurred. Then you just simply pose the argument, the logic, that all these pieces fit together like a puzzle piece, like six different puzzle pieces, five different puzzle pieces. It fits together into a picture of resurrection. Now, what the critics will do, they agree that the pieces are part of the picture. What they do is try to force that to fit some other picture, like the swoon theory or the twin theory or some other explanation for why there isn't there wasn't really a Jesus. But we can look at the picture and say, now wait a minute, you're missing a piece. You've forgotten this piece over here that you you originally said is actually a fact. It is a piece of the puzzle. Where's that in your plan? It's not there. Or they might give you a different puzzle that's missing a piece. And we can say, hey, wait a minute. You claim this is the picture the way it's supposed to look, but you're missing a piece of the puzzle. So 
we're going to give you today the puzzle pieces and the argument and how they fit together, and you'll be able to share with people the evidence for the resurrection. Okay, Keith, last week, towards the end of the hour, I began to play devil's advocate, excuse my term, but <laughs> I was using um, uh, the, I don't know, the, 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 the approach that I don't believe this stuff. Right. And we're going to argue about that. So right. I'm, I'm going to be the uh, individual who is skeptical and who wants absolute proof. And it's going to be up to you to prove to me that I'm wrong. Right. Okay, first and foremost, uh, you want me to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Right. As he was described in the Bible. And by the way, I don't accept the Bible. I think the right. Bible was written by a bunch of kooks who um, had this vision. And saw a lot of stuff and wrote a whole bunch of stuff down in the first hundred years after this historical Jesus walked the earth. Okay, so I don't I don't necessarily believe that what was in the Bible was true. So I need something more than just a biblical source. Okay? Well, well, what you're saying is that the you believe that legend built up and accrued over time. Yes, basically. Yeah. So that's what we're going to talk about. The pieces that we're going to give our listeners today are the pieces that are from early sources from that it's way too early for there have to have been this a, a accumulation of legend uh, added on to it so so I want facts yep that's okay. what that's no, what we're no gonna legends talk about. no stories I want facts hard facts yep so this is called the minimal facts approach and it's been uh, developed by Professor Gary Habermas and he's written many many books on the resurrection so um so he, what he's done is he's detailed facts that 95% of New Testament scholars agree with, okay? So they're saying, yeah, these things really did happen. And the reason that they happened is because there are other facts that back up these facts. So they know that they know they have evidence. It's not just that they're saying yeah, I think it happened. They know that these did happen because of the evidence. All right, now, Keith, are these New Testament scholars all people who believe that Jesus no. existed as deity? No, in fact, most of them don't. Most of them? Okay, that's most good. Most of them. These are, are critics. I think that's fair. So um, so his his approach, then, is to use um, you know this minimal number of facts, as low as four, maybe seven, of the best-attested facts. Now, um, and those are really the best-attested there, there. If you wanted to, you could go up to maybe twenty facts that the vast majority of critics agree with. But that's almost too much. We don't need that much. It's, it's, uh, you know, easier, simpler to just stick with the basic, uh, you know, say five facts that um, that can be agreed upon actually happened, and then see how logically that means that Jesus Christ must have risen from the dead. Okay, so give me some of these uh, these facts, Keith. All right. Well, we're going to draw from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. So let me read this to you. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. Now, this is Paul writing to the Corinthians. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, okay, so Paul is saying, from, for what I received when I became a Christian, I passed on to you 
as of first importance, okay? So he's telling us by saying first importance, he's saying this is the core values, the core beliefs of Christianity, that Christ died for our sins, continuing on, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, who, by the way, was a skeptic, Jesus' brother. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So that's 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. So, Keith, what is so special about Paul? Why should I take Paul and his gospel message in 1 Corinthians so seriously? What makes him so special? Because he was the earliest writer. So he was he's writing before the Gospels. He's writing letters to the churches. He is highly respected by the critics. We know who he is, right? Okay, for instance, say the Gospel of John. You know, um, which John was it that wrote the Gospel of John? Do we actually know that John wrote? Well, from a critical perspective, um, you can, you know, argue that maybe John didn't write the Gospel of John. Okay, so from a critical viewpoint. But critics know that Paul wrote the vast majority of the letters that are attributed to him. So they know who Paul is. They know he actually did write these very, very early. Okay, what's your definition of early? Well, approximately... A.D. 40, 54 to 57 is when uh, this particular passage was written, Corinthians. So, All right, so we're looking roughly 30 years after the supposed uh, resurrection. Well, at most 27, yeah, from the, from the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. So, um, so this is, you know, very early and very reliable. I mean, you know, think about it. Um, how long do you remember things? Do you remember things 27 years back? Sure. You're that old? I just gave you a, a recount of what I experienced in medical school, the first abortion I witnessed. And that was 50 years and ago? And today, t- no, not quite. <laughs> I was 24 years old, so it was well over 30 years. It was 35 years okay, ago. Okay, okay. But here's, here's my point. I remember that so vividly because it's, it was so impactful that I do remember that. Yeah. So you told a story, and, and it was very reliable. It was not something that... Um, you know, you didn't talk about angels appearing and, you know, all kinds of things that critics could say, well, it's all very glorified and No, you know, I, wit- obviously- I witnessed the yeah. abortion. I, I witnessed firsthand information, firsthand knowledge. I was there. And it we, happened, as I right. say. And we have the same thing happens when you pick up a memoir by a World War II vet or a Vietnam vet. You know, it's the same kind of thing. They're eyewitnesses, and this is a perfectly reasonable amount of time. Okay, I will give you that argument then. So virtually all the critics agree that Paul was an eyewitness and and that he thought he saw a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus. Okay, because G- G- Paul was not around when Jesus was actually uh, crucified. Uh, not that we know of. I mean, obviously he was alive. So the we first appearance of him is at the time of the stoning of Stephen. That's when he's mentioned first in Scripture. But he, we know that he was a student of Gamaliel, which is a highly ex, uh, respected teacher in the Sanhedrin. So, um, you know, he was definitely there, but, um, you know, well, he did not 
claim well, to see the resurrected Jesus until later, as as the scripture says. He says that he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Okay. Can you explain that to me? Because if he wasn't there while Jesus was teaching and preaching... Well, you explain it. You know, he he was... Uh, no, he... Keith, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the, <laughs> the protagonist here. Okay. I'm, I'm right. like, you know, the skeptic. Right, I'll play along with you. Okay. He, you know, this was the Damascus Road experience. Uh, so where he was actually persecuting the church, he felt so strongly that Christians were wrong, that they were doing something really terrible to Judaism that he began to persecute them and put them in jail. And he received letters of permission to go into the surrounding area and to arrest Christians and try them. So that's what he was doing, and he was he met uh, Jesus on the road to Damascus and had such a incredible life-changing experience that he became Paul the Apostle, Paul the messenger of Jesus, and spent the rest of his life and in fact died for that message, um, telling people that one of the most crucial things about Christianity is that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead, and that he saw him personally. So Paul was dead set against uh, the new church, the new Christians, and had a conversion experience. That's right. So that makes him that much more powerful in his writings. And this was still early. You know, he became a Christian early on, so he came and preached the gospel in Corinth, according to verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians that we just read, in approximately A.D. 51, okay? So very early on is when he arrived there. And one of the things about Jesus's, or Paul's rather, teaching is that when he talked about the gospel, he always includes the deity, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So, and he, he claims that this is what he received, that this was the teaching that he received. So um, now, when did that happen? When did he become a Christian? When did he receive this information? The majority of critics say that it was at no later than A.D. 35 and could have been as early as A.D. 32. So let's say it's a couple of years after the cross, after the resurrection. After the cross, only a couple of years um, later. So, um, so then, after becoming a believer, uh, very shortly after uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus, he then came back to Jerusalem to check in with Peter and James and just double check: Did I what 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 I was told was that correct? He wanted to t- find out from the kind of the high brass. Um, and they confirm that that is exactly the gospel. So, um, so this then, this structure that we find in 1 Corinthians 15, it turns out that critics of Christianity notice that this is actually in the structure of a catechism, like a, a teaching, and that it was, um, it's designed very carefully. And so they were able to recognize that this is a teaching of the early church that had been around long enough that had become into this mode, this um, catechismal type of um, grammar. So that's why it mentions things like of first importance and things like that. And that's that has to do because of this catechism that it was this was something that early Christians had to learn. Okay, so this this evidence that you're giving me that Paul was one of the first people on the scene, and that his writings were very early on. Yep just adds power to your argument. That's right. So, because he was an eyewitness, he is claiming eyewitness, I saw Jesus alive after his death, 
and um, and he also mentions all the other eyewitness accounts, and all of this is very early, far too early for any kind of legendary accretion to have built up on this. So so a very reliable and uh, early attestation. And what you're also telling me is that he was outside of the circle of the other apostles, the disciples. Correct. As was James. Because James was a non-believer. James was a non-believer. Jesus' own brother was a non-believer. That's right. And we see evidence of that in the Gospels where, you know, that it it explains that, um, you know, James came with Mary and they were going to take him home because they thought he was crazy. So, um, so, so critics are willing to grant that the disciples all believe that they had actually seen Jesus. Okay, now this is the factual part of it, that they believed they had seen the risen Jesus, right? It's not, this is not the whole puzzle put together, you know, that Jesus actually did rise. This is just the part, part of it. So part of it is that critics agree is that the disciples believed that they had seen the risen Jesus. So one thing very significant is that liars do not make for martyrs, right? People will die for things they believe are true, but nobody dies for something they believe is a lie. In fact, they won't even go to jail for it. They'd rather point their finger at somebody else, right? If you know it's a lie, you're not going to suffer for it. So when you talk about uh, Jim Jones's crowd uh, drinking the Kool-Aid and so forth following this maniac, or David Koresh, or the Hale-Bopp comet uh, people who were willing to, to die and hop on board of this comet, uh, they, they believed. They believed it was true. They didn't believe it was a lie. But the, the interesting thing is, for the disciples to have believed this, they would have had to actually see Jesus. You know, they would have actually... There's nothing else that can explain how they could be so convinced that they saw Jesus, that they'd be willing to die for it. They were all wackos. Well, it's interesting. They all went crazy. That's that's a real interesting um, uh, explanation. Suddenly, um, what does it say, 500 people all went crazy at the same time? Not a very likely hypothesis. Well, how about all the sightings of Elvis? Doesn't that play into this, too? Uh, no. No, it really doesn't. It doesn't? Not at all. Okay. You sure? A positive. Okay, uh, so what, what, what are you going to tell me that, that these people weren't kooks? They, they, they weren't wacky? I, I already did, that they were willing to die for it. Oh, you're saying, you're saying that so they were crazy and they were... Yeah, I mean, okay. all, all the people, groups that I just mentioned, they, they were willing to die for their crazy leader, too. But they had no evidence. Okay. Right? I mean... They, you know, they weren't claiming, um, I saw the UFO falling, following the comment. They were saying, I've been told. I've been told, I believe it, uh, I'll die for it. So that's very different from somebody who says, I saw XYZ, I know this actually happened. I'm an eyewitness. That's very different from, um, you know, a crazy, crazy view I was told. Okay. All right, so how do we get from this belief to the fact that they really saw the reason, risen Jesus? Okay, one of the things is bring in another fact, and that is, and we talked about this, we did a whole show on this fact, that he died by crucifixion. Okay, all the critics believe 
all the the um, scholars believe that uh, Jesus died by crucifixion. Okay, and I also know after having reviewed this topic uh, in detail that it was uniformly 100% fatal. Nobody survived crucifixion, period, ever. Right, and nobody survived a, a centurion, a Roman centurion, who checks to see if you're dead by stabbing a spear through your chest. Right? He really wants to make sure you're dead. Okay, I will accept the fact that uh, he died by crucifixion. So um, next, the um, so so you've got that fact. Okay. Got it. Then you've got the fact that the disciples actually believed that they had seen the risen, risen Christ. Okay. Secondly, or thirdly, I guess we're on the third fact, is that they were transformed so much that they were willing to die for this belief. So this transformed their lives. Instead of hiding, instead of running away, um, they were boldly proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. You know, I find it interesting that uh, Saul of Tarsus, who was renamed Paul the Apostle, um, supervised Stephen's stoning. Stephen is, is considered to be the first Christian martyr, martyr ever. That's right. So there had to be some impact there, because he saw Stephen just look up to heaven and recognize the fact that the clouds were opening for him. He saw God and just said, Lord, take me, and, and he died by stoning. Right. You know, it's interesting. We have a, a kid over in uh, Jerusalem from our own church who was stoned by Palestinians uh, with rocks the size of a softball. Uh, a couple of them hit him in his leg and caused tremendous bruising and, and pain. And I said to my wife, these are the same softball-sized rocks that uh, people would use stoning somebody at the gate. Right. And it caused, uh, you know, crushed skulls, crushed ribs, and so forth. But that's how people died from head injuries and rib injuries uh, when people were stoned. Yep. And, so, that and was, so Paul, or Saul at that time, Saul, who later became Paul, uh, probably did think that Stephen was one of those crazy wackos. Right. Right? Kill them all. And so there had to be some impact there. I'm sure that he supervised uh, a number of other incidents where uh, uh, early Christians were, were martyred and killed and persecuted and maimed and and so forth for their beliefs. Well, he was definitely a skeptic, right? And But he explains how he was converted. So he, too, had seen the risen Christ. So Keith, remind me how Paul was converted on Damascus, the road to Damascus? Yes, that's how. I know, he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus. And what did Jesus say to him? Uh, what did Jesus say to him? Why are you persecuting me? And what happened to Paul at that point? Uh, he got blinded. Okay. All right. And later was healed of his blindness? I'm not sure Yeah. where you're okay. going. No, no, no. I, I've heard that report. I just wanted to confirm <laughs> okay. just for the other skeptics in the audience uh, as to why it is that Paul's uh, eyewitness testimony is so powerful. Not to mention the fact that he's the most prolific writer in the New Testament and right. uh, probably the most prolific uh, missionary that's ever traveled the earth. All right, so let's uh, let's look at three more facts. I guess probably before we go on, though, we should remind everybody that you're listening to Evidence for Faith. Uh, if you'd like to call in, 609-398-1020. Give your comments on, uh, on these evidences. If you are being convinced by it or if you think it's helpful to be able to know these things to share with others. Hey, I need some skeptics to help me out here. To oh, Keith, really? Keith has really given me some uh, good <laughs> arguments. I need some skeptics to uh, fire some ammo across his bow because I'm, uh, I'm slowly getting beat up here. We haven't even got to the uh, next three 
the next three things. I feel it coming. All right. So, um, all right. So we've got early reports of the resurrection. Okay. Um, we've got the uh, James, Jesus's brother, being a skeptic who was converted. Um, we've got uh, Paul being a skeptic, being converted, and we've got the fact that the resurrection is a central Christian belief early on, within just a couple of years of uh, the gospel, we've got uh, this becoming a central belief. So so um, no possibility that it could have lasted a long time and, and built up slowly over years. Okay, I, I understand that uh, Tom, our sound engineer, tells us that we have a caller. Hello, caller. Hello. Hello. Yes, you're on the air. What's your question? You're on the air. Oh, oh I guess we lost right. her. Okay. Um, so we've, uh, you know, uh, the thing about this, the fact that it's a central uh, issue, right? Mm. This is one of the central... Um, Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead as central to Christianity. These are the things that are carefully looked into and carefully examined. So Paul, the disciples, all would have carefully checked out that this was really true. No one's going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. What do we believe, by the way? Oh, that Jesus rose from the dead. What? No. When it's the core beliefs are you become a Christian, you believe Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead. You're going to check out and make sure whether or not you really believe that. So um, so it's very, uh, very obvious that this was a central core belief early on. So now, how do we know that they actually saw Christ? Okay. Well, all the available facts that we have argue that for the resurrection. So each of the facts argues for the resurrection. Then there's the belief um, that they saw the risen Christ. Okay, that plus the fact that every other. See, when you're looking at um, what is the best explanation, you have to consider other explanations. So what are the other considerations? What are the other explanations? None of those other considerations look at the actual facts. And we're going to be doing a show, Keith. Uh, we ought to remind our, our listening audience that we're going to talk about all of the other theories as to what may have happened. Right, in a couple of weeks we'll and do that. that. Right, and why those theories don't hold water, and that the actual best explanation is that Jesus was who he was, and that he actually was resurrected right. in bodily form. So, so, so this approach, this examining the um, critical issues, the, the facts, and fitting them into that argument that there's no other explanation that fits all those pieces, um, is uh, the benefit of this approach by Dr. Habermas. Mm -hmm. So, um, and this is really... Uh, tremendous, been a tremendous tool to battle some of these theories and some of the critics and and really gives us our, our inference to the best explanation. So we can go on the offensive, um, you know, we can show we've got the facts and 
At the same time, we can then go on the offensive against the critic and say, why is it that these facts don't fit your theory? And where's your first century uh, evidences for the resurrection? Okay. So, um, all right. So, so we're going to, I think we're, we're going to wrap this part up, the resurrection part today. We're going to um, go on into um, next week. We're going to take a look at, was Jesus the smartest person in the world? Uh, interesting question because uh, an important question for, for Christians. Was Jesus the smartest person in the world? We're going to take a look at some of some ideas about that and some of the logic that Jesus used. Did he make any logical errors? If he made a logical fallacy, that would be evidence that he was not God. So. Yeah, and I, I think it's uh, interesting that he knew the uh, tough questions before they were even posed to him and had a, uh, a very clever answer that caught the uh, Sadducees and the Pharisees in their own deception and how he would turn it right. on them. Yeah, uh, we're going to look at a few of those. Incredibly, uh, time after time, whenever he was uh, entrapped or apparently getting himself into a trap, he already knew his way out um, just by posing a question and totally incriminating the uh, the people who were trying to trap him in the first place. Well, uh, so we'll be, we'll be doing that next week. And then after that, we're going to go into some of the different theories on the resurrection, some of the... Uh, swoon theory and uh, all that stuff. But I brought along a book, and it's actually a review of a book by an atheist who became a Christian. And he writes a real interesting um, review of his own book, an analysis basically of why he wrote this book. It's called The Making of an Atheist, and it's by author James Spiegel. And he, in this book, he analyzes some of the possible reasons that atheists don't believe in God. I mean, why is it that an atheist will refuse to believe in God even though the evidence is so strong? Well, um, this comes, of course, I think we all know, and uh, he talks about this in this, this article. So I'll just um, briefly read what he's got here. Sigmund Freud famously dismissed belief in God as a psychological projection caused by wishful thinking. Today, many of the new atheists, including Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, make similar claims, insisting that believers are delusional. Faith is a kind of cognitive disease, which means, you know, a thinking disease, according to them. And they are doing all that they can, they can to rid the world of all religious belief and practice. On the other hand, Christian apologists from Dinesh D'Souza to Ravi Zacharias have been quick to respond to the new atheists, revealing holes in their arguments and showing why theistic belief and the Christian worldview in particular are reasonable. In fact, the evidence for God is overwhelming and uh, confirming the Apostle Paul's point in Romans 1 that the reality of God is clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse, Romans 1.20. So if the evidence for God is plain to see, then why are there atheists, right? That is the question that prompted the making of an atheist, continuing on here. The answer I propose, this is the author, the answer I propose 
turns the tables on all the new atheists as I show that unbelief is a psychological projection, a cognitive disorder arising from willful resistance to the evidence for God. In short, it is atheists who are the delusional ones. The atheist rejection of God is precipitated by immoral indulgences, usually combined with some deep psychological disturbances, such as broken relationships with one's father. Now, this has been backed up by some uh, psychological uh, studies. And, um, uh, gosh, I should have looked up. There's one from New York that I remember several years ago that compared uh, 10 of the most famous atheists in the world with 10 of the most famous theists in the world. And they looked at uh, their background, their family background, and the atheists all came from broken homes, and the theists all came from stable homes. So it's really interesting. And, that, and they just, you know, obviously they didn't know that ahead of time. They, they um, strictly picked them by their popularity. So, um, so, so he continues on. He says, these and other factors I discuss are among the various dimensions of sin's corrupting influence on the mind. So that's from the book the making of an atheist. So sounds uh, sounds very interesting you know, by Keith, James Spiegel. Just listening to that little um, review uh, reminds me of my own uh, journey, uh, because when I scuba dived for the first time in 1982, Romans 120 hit me right between the eyes, because when I first went down and visited a reef uh, oh, as yeah. a scuba diver. I remember you telling me this. And the vast array of, of, of life forms and color and formations of coral and so forth, it totally blew me away. And I remember very vividly, now this is 1982, folks, 25 years ago, at least. No, more than that, 35 years ago. I vividly remember saying to myself, wow, this could make me believe in God, you know? Yep. And, and uh, prior to that, I thought that uh, religion was organized schizophrenia, Okay, people hearing voices and and so forth. I mean, hey, let's face it. I have medicine for that stuff. You know what I mean? I can I can fix that. Right. You know, with a little little prescription. Right. Um, but uh, Romans one twenty had uh, a lot of impact on me. I remember that. But it's what? also interesting to hear you say that the the atheist camp is in denial, and their own projection is is denial and resistance and reticence and right. and from having a bad father figure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if you think of fathers as abusive, um, you know, distant. Um, Uncaring, then, unloving. Un- right, exactly. Then Deserting. Why would you think that there is a father in heaven? That's all loving. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, and th- on the opposite side, if you have a great relationship with your father and uh, come from a great home, it just seems natural to you that there would be uh, a father in heaven, a loving father uh, that started all life going. So, uh, so that I'm going to hopefully pick up that book and and uh, and read it. Well, let's see. We've got a few minutes left. Just a reminder for everyone: you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks, and I'm Dr. Mike Larakis. You can check us out at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. You can um, go to Facebook. We're on Facebook. There's a group there that you can become a member of, and we have uh, discussion issues, discussion on the resurrection, and a couple of other discussion groups going on, some very interesting uh, input, getting a lot of input from uh, India, actually, so from people from India that are members of the group. 
So, um, and then uh, thirdly, I think you can uh, find us on iTunes. So, but if you go to the website, it tells a, a little bit about what Evidence for Faith is all about, and there's a couple of um, descriptions that, uh, you know, describe Evidence for Faith is an apologetics ministry. Okay, what's an apologetics ministry? Well, apologetics means defending the faith, and we present evidences for Christianity trying to do it in an intellectually appealing way. We don't back down from the facts. We think the facts are on our side. So we show how sound logic, strict analytical philosophy, and the latest scientific discoveries, everything from microbiology to archaeology to astronomy, support the truth claims of Christianity. And Keith, I think that that little piece that we did at the very outset of this show on the um, programming of this new microbe into cell division that was done in a scientific laboratory— it just speaks of intelligent design. Absolutely. Okay, and, and uh, creationists would have looked at this data in a completely different way than uh, secular humanists, scientists who are by and large atheists or who are just totally not allowed to uh, admit any uh, dealings with faith or the Bible in the scientific laboratory. But uh, clearly this, all of the evidence from, from genetics to microbiology and the intense um, uh, what's the word that I want? Uh, all, all of the, just the complexity of, right. of the cell and the genome right. speak of intelligent design. These are not happenstance uh, occurrences right. that happened over billions of years. These were things that were intelligently put together and brought to life. Right. And uh, that's one of the things that's so exciting about the intelligent design movement is that it is just taking over. There are so many more scientists who are adopting the intelligent design movement, and it is made already... Uh, historical progress in science by using intelligent design. One of the things that's brought out in that book I told you earlier, I'm reading The Signature of the Cell by Stephen Myers, is that there have been research now looking at an intelligent design version of cancer. And by looking at how uh, cancer could be caused by the breakdown of intelligently designed nanotechnology, actually has made interesting inroads into what causes cancer and new discoveries about um, what is at the center of the cell. Um, For instance, the centromere. Uh, One of the things we know about uh, cancer is that very frequently there will be something wrong with the centromere first, Mm -hmm. and then the cancer happens. So by using intelligent design, uh, a biologist was looking at the centromere to see how it functioned and saw that it's set up as a turbine. It looks like two turbines actually opposed to each other. It has nine blades each. So he then, um, by thinking, okay, this probably is a turbine, by thinking this is intelligently designed, what would a turbine be doing here? He was able to essentially reverse engineer and predict. It has to have these parts. It has to have these parts. It has to act in this fashion, and it's probably doing this function. By doing that, they then investigated the uh, centrosomes that are part of the centromere, and turns out that they are high-speed turbines that push fluid, and that's actually what part of what makes the cell divide properly. So it spins at tens of thousand revolutions per, per second, all powered by ATP fabulously complex. So you have, not only do you have pumps 
and motors that we've talked about in the past inside your cell, but you also have high-speed turbines. If I can just translate that, Keith, into something simple so that our listeners will understand exactly what you just said. Cancer, folks, is unbridled cellular growth. So you have an abnormal cell that's just reduplicating itself much faster than uh, all of the other feedback mechanisms would allow it to. Normally, cell division only occurs when it has to, and in cancer, it just uh, divides and divides and divides, and consequently, you have a tumor mass, and that puts pressure on all all the other living and support structures around it. Right. So, um, well, you've been listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. Join us again next Sunday at 4 p.m. for more reasons to believe, and always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. 